Guys, I'm going to begin because um, tonight is a, is a lesson where we're going to close out the third chapter of Ephesians, but it's a lesson that really honestly should be too. So let me um, just break down what I plan on doing. That way, if I say it out loud, maybe I can stick to it. Um, there are two basic themes tonight. One is going to involve the power that is at work in us. That's the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ. The other is going to be Paul's phrase that will constitute our title, which is world without end. Um, I want to approach this through two styles of, of uh, expression. One, a little sermon-esque. The other, a little Bible study. Okay? And by sermon-esque, this first verse is going to... Th- this will be the short part, but it'll be the part that I feel like you can apply, take out of this room, do something with this week. Something I always try to do every week, really, to give you a Jesus-centric thought, not just a principle, but a thought that puts Christ in the center, and then your Bible study gets enhanced because you see Jesus. We're going to try that up front with the first verse. The second verse is eschatological, and I know I framed it that way last week when we ended and said next week, for one of the first times in a while, we kind of dip our toe into the eschatological waters. That's sort of end of the age, end of the world talk in the New Testament. And so I want to stick with that. But when you do that, you can't be shallow. I mean, you can't just throw out a statement, you know, you got to put some text on it. And then when you put a little bit of text, you got to put a bunch because I've done this for years and nothing gets more vitriol and hatred than messing with end of the world theology. And so if you don't give four verses instead of the one you gave, then you're going to get 12 back from someone who likes to play here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. And that game can go on all night long. Um, so what we'll do when we hit that half of the message is we're going to throw a lot of scripture at you, admittedly. I will read it through once, but I'm not going to promise we're going to give it equal time. But what I do want is you to have access to it. I want you to see how this flows because we're going to lay out that there's this bit of a river in the New Testament out of which the, the New Testament writers are intentionally digging that stream. And I think for a reason, um, we can't solve all the problems tonight. We're not going to try. This is not going to segue me into 12 weeks of eschatology. Um, in fact, I will say up front, for those who stopped in on this video or, or whatever looking for that, um, just go look for our vlogs, Finished Work Eschatology vlog. I numbered them 1 through 40. You can search for them. You can Google search them, put my name in Finished Work Eschatology vlog, and they'll pop up. Watch them in order. It's my walkthrough of Matthew 24. We'll get into Matthew 24 a little bit tonight. That's the exhaustive version. That's, it's not just a gloss over. It's in-depth. A lot of references, a lot of sources, pulling from church history, pulling from scholars. Um, it doesn't mean we got it figured out, but it means we gave it a shot. So it, there's going to be a lot of holes tonight. <laughs> Those holes are filled over 10 times over in that series. And, and it, we, we intentionally did like 13 hours of teaching on that, basically Matthew 24, and then some satellites of that in the Bible. So um, that being said... Let's get started. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. There's only 21 verses, so let's start with the shorter chunk of tonight's lesson with the first verse of these two. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And you see there's a comma because this flows right into that last thought. But I wanted to stop here for this reason, first of all. This was one of those power verses that I heard growing up in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. And I've got a feeling it wasn't just a Pentecostal charismatic thing because my, my very early formative years were Baptist. And we said this verse a lot too. I think it's one of those cross 
denominational verses. It basically was a hopeful, optimistic verse about prayer, about the power of God. Um, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above whatever we ask or think. So that was like, go ahead and shoot for the moon when you pray. Ask God for big because he's able to do whatever you want. Uh, the interesting thing is, is um, we buried the lead in this verse. And, and I really do think that if you bring out the Greek, you bring it to the front, you realize that we buried the lead. It's almost like we buried it on purpose. Can you see that? To him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, if you bury the lead, then the lead must be somewhere in too deep into the sentence. Well, hint, hint, according to the power that works in us, that's the heartbeat of that verse. The heartbeat of the verse is not what I get, <laughs> although that's how it's quoted. I'm going to get exceedingly abundantly above whatever I can ask or think. Well, God's going to do it. But what Paul really has as his heartbeat in the text is the power. Let me show you how this could be better arranged by what I think is the best Greek scholar alive today, David Bentley Hart in his Greek New Testament words it this way, putting the Greek where it lays in Paul's world. Now to the one who by the power operating within us, that's how you don't bury the lead on that verse. That's how you bring the focus back to who Christ is and what he's doing in me. Everything else becomes residual. To the one who by the power operating within us is able to do super abundantly more than all the things for which we ask or of which we think. And you might think, well, it's not as poetic. Well, Fine, it's not as poetic, but it's, to me it's more potent. It's more potent because it puts the, the impetus of the verse not on what I get, what I get's way back here. It's the one who, by the power that operates inside of me, and so it puts the focus on the power of God within me. And that really has had me thinking this week about the power of God and the power as expressed through us and how much, we've, how much in my life I've spent asking God for power, how many services I've been in in which it was all about wanting to receive the power of God, uh, see God's power manifested in this prayer line, have God manifest His power in this sermon or through this song or in our day-to-day -day lives. And I've, I've had a lot of time over the years thinking about why God doesn't just honor that because I spent a lot of time thinking, wouldn't it benefit the cause of the kingdom if God just did unbelievably powerful things through His church, like constantly? Wouldn't there be, wouldn't there be nothing greater that God could do to convince the world of His power than just to do these demonstrative, outlandish shows of power through His church? And I could give you 20 reasons why life doesn't work that way. I'll condense it down to one. He tried it with Egypt and that didn't keep him faithful because Egypt had power, 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 power. Israel, I mean, Israel comes out of Egypt. Israel gets into the wilderness, power, power. He's bringing water out of rocks. He's bringing man out of heaven. <laughs> it's an endless stream of miracles and you get to the end of it and Israel still cheats on him. So it's, it's not as if God was experimenting. All those lessons I think were for us is to go, it doesn't work that way. And here's why it doesn't work that way. Because, and I know this is hard, this has been a hard pill for me to swallow too. God is so concerned with transforming you that He's so much more concerned with transforming you than He is with using you. And yet, most of us have been taught to be used of God. And you need to find out your place and get your call. And walk into your anointing. And all these fancy pants things we say to people that have no 
used for transformation. So I put all that together and come up with this thought. There is a power working in you. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we long for the power of the Spirit, but the truth is we already have it. And I believe that if you have Christ in you, you must have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Otherwise, you have a spiritless Christ, which is pointless. What we want is the power that works through us. That's what everybody wants. Use my hands. Use my voice. Touch my life. Let me be a a power cell of the Spirit. Let let me transform this world. That's what we're always asking for. But the, the problem is, is often... We don't let it work in us first. We just want it to work through us. And that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of the power of the Holy Spirit. I think this is why there has been an absolute return in the modern church to the, to the fruit of the Spirit. A return to the preaching of the fruit of the Spirit, loving your neighbor, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out. And I think it's even happened at the expense of us teaching the gifts of the Spirit. And that's okay. And I think that's because we focused for so long on the out loud gifts of the Spirit. Laying hands on, prophesying over, tongues, interpretation of tongues, word, wisdom, word of knowledge. And we minored in internal transformation. Like in fact, we didn't even really care about internal transformation as long as the guy had power. Like we'd follow anything as long as they were dynamic. If they could move the crowd, we'll follow them. didn't matter how they live behind closed doors. In fact, we'll cover up for them behind closed doors as long as they bring the power. You bring the thunder, you can kind of live like hell. We don't really care because in, at the end of the day, it's the power that brings people in. It's not your private life. And it's, it, it shows how little we understand the heart of the Holy Spirit who's in, it, who's in each of us going, what I really want to do is transform you from the inside out. All this other stuff you want, that's sparkly, all the, all the things that glitter might not be the thing that brings transformation from the inside out. And so I don't think this is permanent. I, I really do believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and I believe there's going to be a turn where the Holy Spirit begins to manifest in gifts in ways that we could never have imagined, but I think it's going to come on the back of the fruit of the Spirit ripening in the heart of His people. Let me show you a couple of verses to help solidify that. We've used these before, but they're always worth coming back to. Paul closes 1 Corinthians 12. Well, he doesn't. That's wrong. He doesn't close 1 Corinthians 12. He's just writing. We close it. It was an unfortunate close, but we'll use it. Look at the end of this chapter. Is everyone an apostle? Is everyone a prophet? Is everyone a teacher? Does everyone work miracles? Does everyone have gifts of healings? Does everyone speak with tongues? Does everyone interpret? Um, the answer to these is no, but in my Pentecostal era, the answer was they're supposed to, (laughs) right? It's like, we didn't even know these verses were in the Bible because Paul goes, everybody's not all of these things. Don't desire to be these things. Just desire the best gift. In other words, whatever it is that would be best for you, that's what you go to the Lord with. Not, I want to be him. I want to be her. Why? We're not all of these things. But we do all have the potential to be us and to be the best version of us that we could possibly be. But I'm not going to be the best version of me if I'm worried about being any version of you and vice versa. And so I think that's kind of Paul's layout there is go forget all that other stuff because everybody wants to be these. And boy, do they. Especially you get in church environments. Everybody's got this goal, this thing. I want to be anything other than me. 
You don't want to be anything other than what I'm gifted at. He goes, just desire the best. And yet, and yet, there's even something better. Now, it's unfortunate that there's a chapter break, but it also kind of works because it kind of stops it for a second. Gets you to think about what would be the more excellent way. I mean, apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, gifts of healing, speaking with tongues, that's pretty good stuff. Okay, well, maybe not. We're, maybe we're not all supposed to be that, but we do all have good gifts. All right, give me my best gift. And Paul goes, there's something even better. And this is hard to fathom. There's something even better than you discovering your best gift for yourself. And it would be the next verse, which is a chapter break. But if you skip the break and run right into it, though I would speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. What chapter are we in? The great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. I've read it 50 times at weddings in my life. Everybody wants this chapter read over their marriage. This is what the definition of love is. And that's fine, whatever. Um, most people don't live it. <laughs> but, you know, they sure do have a good moment at their wedding um, where they lie to themselves that love is patient. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and love is kind. And yeah, yeah, well, good luck. Um, but the, the contextual point that Paul goes is, we don't all get to be this, 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 this. He lists off a bunch of stuff. We do all have a gift. Find it. But I got something even better for you. What if you loved people? And then it's verse after verse after verse of Paul saying love would work. What happens if there is no fruit is we're, cl- we're sounding brass, we're clanging cymbal. And for the Hebrew, I think that speaks back to those bells and pomegranates around the high priest's robe in the Old Testament. A bell, a piece of fruit. A bell, a piece of fruit. All the way around the, the hem of his garment. And the, the, the bell would ring by hitting up against that fruit. It's a type of the fruits and the gifts remove the fruit, and Paul goes, it's just two bells clanging against each other. If all we got is a church full of gifts, because we're not, we're not actually going to love anyone because we're all just going to try to showcase our stuff. Just want to show you what I'm good at. He goes, and in the end game, it doesn't really do that, didn't really do that much good. And so the power that's working in us needs to work in us before we ever worry about the power working through us or the power working out of us. I would like to see a Pentecostal renewal in the church. But what I mean by that is not a renewal of everyone desiring the external power, but a renewal of the internal fire of Pentecost burning out of us what doesn't belong so that the fruit can get ripe that belongs in there. And I believe the Holy Spirit is doing that. He's doing it His way. He's not doing it our way. He's doing it His way. He's winning this ultimately. Um, That leads us back to Ephesians 3 and back to the next verse. Before we really lock in on that final phrase, I want to make sure that we see how he gets there. To him be glory. This is the same one whose power works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Where Jesus isn't the centerpiece of glory, the centerpiece of praise, we're always going to run into problems and we're going to see less transformation because the power that works in us is doing a work, but it's to give Christ the glory. Where Christ doesn't receive the glory, I don't think we're going to see the power at work within us. How, how do we see that in environments where Christ is the centerpiece, that power, that 
that is transforming us is going to work inside of us. Let me show you another way. I always like to show you another way to say it. Here's the same writer. Paul says this in Romans 11. And this sounds a lot like what we read in whenever Paul said, oh, that I wish you would know the love of Christ, the height, the depth, the width, the length. Remember that? It sounds like this. Oh, the depth, Romans 11:33. the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We used that verse in connection with the previous one a few weeks ago because the previous verse is he has confined everybody so that he can be merciful to everybody. And we go, well, that's not fair. We go, okay, well, his ways are unsearchable. So you don't have to understand it. So his, his ways are unsearchable. His judgments are past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Um, Paul's kind of Frankensteining some Old Testament here. A couple of Isaiah's, a couple of Job's. He doesn't cite his sources, but his audience would have understood it. They don't look quite familiar to us because our Old Testament's out of Hebrew. His Old Testament was out of Greek. So they word them a little differently. But he's just grabbing some ideas as he goes. This is free-forming, Paul. Because this isn't Paul sitting down with an ink pen writing. This is Paul talking. And when you talk, you pull verses. So Paul's sort of pulling verses as he goes. So he's just kind of remembering some of these verses he learned about the Lord and for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so Paul sort of concludes this Romans 11 prayer with the same sound at the end of his Ephesians 3 prayer. And what that tells me is we're pretty sure Romans is sort of a, a, a transcription. I mean, he gets to the end of the letter and names the transcriber. So he's sort of sitting around a table talking Romans out, which is why Romans feels like it circles the drain about 12 times when you read those 16 chapters. Like, oh, we were here two chapters ago. Oh, we're back. Because that's how we talk. We get back to it. Ephesians doesn't feel that way. And Ephesians is Paul sitting down writing to his church. But interestingly enough, when he talks, he comes up with this theme. When he sets down to write, he comes up with this theme. This must be really close to Paul's heart. It's to say, I really wish you guys could get how good he is. I really wish you could get how much he loves you. I really wish you could just know his unsearchable judgments and his ways. And to him, all of this glory belongs. All right, change gears. Let's go a little teach mode in that we need to pull some verses and start to build this little river that I think is an undercurrent in the New Testament in, the, in regards to how they understood the age they were in and how they understood that age about to come to an end. To do that, go back to the verse at Ephesians 3.21, and we use the King James. This is the most popular version of this verse that most of us sort of cut our teeth on. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And that's from that we derive our title tonight, because one of the most famous phrases in regards to... Um, does the earth come to an end, is world without end. Um, this is an interesting one. I don't want to put words in people's mouths in these sections. I have a bad habit of doing that sometimes. And, and a lot of times when we do that, we'll build straw man arguments and we'll fight against no one. We'll fight against this invisible person we've created who's saying all this stuff no one's saying but us. And I don't want to do that. But I do know that Phrases like world without end can be a little problematic if you're pretty sure the world's about to end. Now, I'll just, we'll just, I'll just throw that out there. Like, if you're pretty sure the world's about to end, and then Paul goes, the world without end, you go, well, what'd Paul mean? And so then you gotta kind of do some calisthenics, spiritually, textually, to kind of figure out what Paul might have meant 
uh, of World Without End. And I'm actually going to try to run with that for a second because I want to show you that I, I do believe you can find enough Pauline language that something's come to an end. So how can one guy that thinks something's coming to an end say something like World Without End? Um, I'll preface it all by saying um, end of the world scenarios or an eschatological, which is the end of things, um, are probably the most intriguing things Christians want to learn about. Most Christians go straight to Revelation when they finally start reading their Bible. Um, it's also the most confusing thing that most people know about uh, or ever hear about. It's the thing that none of us can be 100% certain about uh, because we're dealing with 2,000-year-old writings and sometimes older than that in regards to some events that have actually happened, talking about events that are they still out in your future. Um, and because of that, there's probably no more divisive topic um, than when you talk about how this is all going to come down. It's also, it also shocks me at how people demand solid answers. This is one topic where people hate question marks. They hate for you to say, I'm not really sure what that looks like. It could be this, it could be this, it could be this. They look at that as some form of weakness. And I don't understand that. I'm, I genuinely don't understand how it is weak to run your options and, and be open to the possibility that you're wrong especially when it comes to something that you cannot prove. <laughs> I think it's why we don't like question marks, because if you can't prove it, you can't disprove it. Mm -hmm. And we seem to kind of like things that maybe we could be super right about because no one can disprove it. This little segment is not about proving or disproving. I want to establish that Paul says this for a reason. Because in the Hebrew mentality, of which Paul calls himself a Hebrew, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. In Philippians, he traces his lineage to the tribe of Benjamin. So he's Jewish, all right? He's a Christian by our definition, but he's Jewish. And in his Jewish mentality, his records, his writings, the writings he grew up with that he cut his spiritual teeth on taught him those three words. His Jewish writings taught him the world does not end. For instance, Psalm 104, verse 5. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter or fall forever and ever. This is in their songbook. So one of the things that is sort of an underlying theme in their worship is this place isn't going anywhere. God established it. If God established it, it cannot fall apart. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 4 a generation goes and a generation comes. Amen. People live and people die. But the earth remains forever. I use a couple Old Testament passages just as a little bit of underpinning for how Paul is thinking. So when he says world without end, he's not prophesying. He's just saying what he knows, which is God's in charge. This thing isn't going anywhere. Now, Paul doesn't have some sort of change of heart as he goes along. He's just merely establishing, he's saying what he would have learned as a good Hebrew. Or let me try to put it into one paragraph, that whole thought. Israel saw herself as separate from the planet in terms of identity. She was an alien. She was a stranger. She was a traveler. She's sort of traversing this world, waiting for her promised land. 
when Israel references herself, she speaks in terms of epochs and ages as a place unto herself, allowing the entire world to be her world, not Rome, not Greece, not the strangers and the barbarians, so that when we talk to the ends of the earth, we're the only thing that matters. This is Israel's way of thinking. So when we say the whole earth, we're not talking about anyone else. We're talking about us. We're talking about who we are. This kind of speech allows for a prophetic language that was always directed at her, not at the world at large. So that when you read her prophetic works in the Old Testament and it speaks to the world, it's speaking to her world. It's not speaking to their world. They didn't care so much about the prophetic language as it regarded what God would do to the Gentiles. It mattered what God would do to them. If we miss this fact, we will often put ourselves and we'll put our time, our context, our stuff into their story. And we'll do it as if we are the target audience. So that when we hear an Old Testament prophecy about what God's going to do, we'll assume that God's talking to us. And we think maybe Revelation gets us off the hook because it's not in the Old Testament. So maybe because it's in the New Testament, well, that one must apply to us as well. But I want you to continue to think in those terms that Paul, that Jewish man, seeing his own writing and his own people as understanding the world isn't going anywhere and that they are a segment within that world. And keep that in mind when you read stuff like this, like Isaiah chapter 51 Verse 16, I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. I do this because I want you to notice that according to God, speaking through Isaiah, the establishment of the heavens and the foundation of the earth is Israel. You are my people. You go, well, Isaiah 51, there was already a heavens and an earth. Yes. But God is giving Israel an identity as a people on the earth that are their own place. They are, and and to them, that then becomes personified in the temple. Heaven sitting on the earth. Where's God live? In heaven. Where's heaven? To a Christian, we go, heaven's that place over there when we die. But to the Jewish mentality, heaven on earth is the place where God lives. Where did God live? In the backside of the temple, at the most holy place. So heaven on earth is the place where God dwells. They are, that is a separate entity than the whole planet. And so you could talk in terms of a new heaven and a new earth without talking in terms of a new earth. Why? Because you've already established that the earth isn't going anywhere, but we are our own entity on that earth. Israel says, and God has a place called the temple that he lives, which is heaven on his earth. This is his spot. Let me give you another one. Haggai chapter two, verse six. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Once again, Old Testament, minor prophet. Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. Okay. Two different things are going to happen. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. That's not cosmic Jupiter and Mars and planet earth because God's already established that to him, heaven and earth is his people. So he goes, I'm going to shake my own people. I'm also going to shake all the nations, two different things. So I'm going to do something in heaven and earth, my people. I'm also going to do something in the nations 
And they're going to come with the wealth of all nations and fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver's mine, the gold's mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And this is a temple prophecy. And God goes, I'm going to shake the heaven and the earth, that is this temple. I'm also going to shake the sea and the dry land. And the sea is the, for Israel, was that brazen labor outside the temple where they washed their hands after they slaughtered animals. That was the sea. And the land was the land upon which the sea sat. And God says, I'm going to shake all of that. But don't worry, because when the temple is finally mine again, it'll be better than it ever was before. Right? So a prophecy of a renewed or a restored temple. Let me give you one more. Deuteronomy chapter 31, 30, which segues into 32, 1. Here's another one of those chapter breaks. I just wanted to show you the context. Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. I wanted you to hear that it was to Israel. Okay? Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. He's not talking to Egypt. He's not talking to Greece. He's not talking to China. He's talking to Israel, heavens, and the earth. Okay. This is, a, this is what Paul's got to work with. See, we've got to put ourselves in his mindset before we can put ourselves in his words. Because if we don't put ourselves in his mindset, then we make his words say what we want them to say. And what we've done a lot of times with eschatology is we've made them say things we want them to say instead of things they were saying to their people. So keep that in mind. When Jesus and his disciples come outside the temple in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple. Time out. It's because I don't want you to peek. The temple is heaven on earth, right? Just establish that. All right. Jesus comes out of the temple and going away when his disciples came up to the point out the temple, his disciples came up to the point out the temple buildings to him, and he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another. Famous prophecy. Everybody's heard this. Maybe you didn't know where it was in the Bible. Now you do. Jesus goes, Not one stone's going to be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came over to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. Now, in some of your Bibles, the translation says, when are these things going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the world. Which has us going, this whole thing's coming down. But we, we realize that Paul ends Ephesians 3 by going, world without end. And he's building off of Ecclesiastes. And he's building off of Psalms, where his own book tells him, the world's never going to end but there are some things on the earth that are going to end. And those things are going to, Jesus said, one stone's not even going to be left on the other. In other words, some stuff's about to happen that's going to make a difference. Skip all the way to 29. Again, what I told you 20 minutes ago, you need the depth of this, go watch those vlogs. It's more than most people want, okay? It's like hours and hours and hours. We go verse by verse by verse. But I want to jump you all the way to 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Something's going to happen where the sun's going to go dark and the moon's not going to reflect light, and the heavens are going to shake, and the stars that light up the sky are going to fall from the sky. What in the world is Jesus talking about if not natural phenomenon when the sun falls out of the sky, the moon falls out of the sky, and all these astro uh, uh, astronomical things, literally, begin to happen in the world. 
like maybe red blood moons and comets coming by that are going to destroy the world. Perhaps this is what Jesus is talking about. Well, let's skip ahead just a little bit farther into his message into verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not. What's heaven and earth? To a Jew. Temple. How'd the chapter start? Not one stone's going to be left unturned. And they go, when? And Jesus tells them a whole chapter of stuff to look for. He goes, watch for this. And they did. And a lot of it shows up in the book of Acts. If you walk through Acts, it starts to show up. The false Christ that show up. The tribulation that shows up. The persecution that shows up. The wars and the rumors of wars that show up. It begins to happen in their day. And Jesus says, this generation, those of you who asked me this question, look for this. By the way, heaven and earth as you know it, gone. That same temple that is heaven on the earth is going to vanish and it's going to happen in your generation. So Jesus dies on the cross. He resurrects from the dead. He spends some time with his disciples. He ascends into heaven and then he pours out the Holy Ghost over the grand balcony of heaven into his new church. And the Holy Spirit inspires 3,000 people to come to Christ. And in the middle of that sermon, the first sermon ever preached under the brand new Pentecostal experience is Acts chapter 2. Right? When Peter goes, Peter gets full of the Holy Ghost and steps out there with Sam's Bible. He's not got him, a, he's not got his book tucked under his arm. He just knows a bunch of verses he grew up with. They're in his heart. He's been waiting on this moment. He walked with Jesus. He watched him die. He, resur- he watches him resurrect. He, he eats breakfast with him on the beach in John 21. He watches Jesus disappear, and now the Holy Spirit comes. And he knows the second that Holy Spirit shows up, this is it, man. This is what we were waiting for. This is what I saw in Jesus. This is what I felt when I held his hand walking on the water. This is the real deal. This is why I kept moving forward when the rooster crowed, because I knew something was coming. So of all the verses that he can reach back into and grab in his memory banks, This is what he grabs. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And it shall be in the last days. God says that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I heard that my whole life. And we rejoiced. Because every time somebody shouted in church, somebody would grab the mic and go, this is that. That was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then Jericho March. Here we go. This is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all mankind. When? In the last days. And every time we'd have a Holy Ghost service, somebody would go, you know what that means? This must be... Now what's Peter working with? Peter's sitting there in Matthew 24 when he elbows Jesus and goes, when's this going to happen? When is the last days? And Jesus goes, heaven and earth is going to come down. You're going to see this and this and this and this and this. It's going to happen to your generation. And when the Holy Ghost shows up inside of Peter, Peter flips a switch and goes, 
I think we just entered the last days. He says, we just entered the last days because this stuff's happening. Now, we stopped right here. When I was growing up and we quoted this verse, we just stopped. We already had enough to shout off. Look at this. Look at all that good stuff. That's glory. But Peter doesn't stop. There's more. And he doesn't stop not because he's rambling. He doesn't stop because to him, the next part is proof that this is real. You can't leave the next part off as far as he's concerned. 19. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, smoke. The sun will turn dark. The moon will turn to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he remembers what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 when he said there's going to be signs in the heavens that his sun is going to go dark and the moon is not going to shine and the stars will stop giving their light. And so Peter receives the Holy Spirit and says, I, you know what? I think we're there. I think it's lights out on what we used to be. So the last days from that moment is not 3,000 years in Peter's future. He knows it's in his generation. Has to be. It confirms what Jesus told him in Matthew 24. So everything from that moment on that the New Testament writers have to offer about what it looks like in that era of the last days, they are not thinking of it as a prophetic word for a people 2,000 years later, but as a word for them to live by in their hour. So much of the New Testament needs to be interpreted through this lens. They were at the end of the age and they knew it. How'd they know it? They knew it because Jesus told them so and they knew it because the Holy Ghost showed up. And when Joel said, when the Holy Ghost shows up and you begin to prophesy and your sons and your daughters dream, dream, that lights out on an old way. Sun's going down, moon's going to stop shining, stars fall from the heavens. They did not comprehend the end of the earth in the way we do because in their terms, they were the earth. So their end, or my parenthetical, the end of the system they'd always known was the end of the world as they knew it. REM was not wrong. (laughs) When they said it's the end of the world as we know it because the reality is it is often the end of the world as you know it. And that's okay. Sometimes your world needs to be recreated. It is the end of the world as they knew it. Notice how the writing changes the farther you get away from AD 70. The farther, because at AD 70, the temple comes down and the stones are pulled one off of the other, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. The farther you get from AD 70, the gospel changes the way it talks. By the time you get to the Gospel of John, there's no end of the world prophecy. There's just a spotlight on a resurrected Christ. He doesn't mention the end of the world. Why? Because it's already ended. You go, well, no, the world's still standing. No, the world as they knew it had ceased. World without end is the world we're living on. The world Paul knew you were going to be living on. World without end is the world you're going to live on forever. But the system you live in doesn't last forever. And Peter's prophecy was lights out on the system, man. Jesus said it's going to happen in your generation. And Paul doesn't disagree. And if you miss this from Paul, you get some funky Paul theology. Like, Paul's a straight weirdo if he doesn't think this way. Here's a good example. 1 Corinthians 7, 27. Are you bound to a wife? Well, don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Well, then don't seek a wife. Well, my goodness, if you don't read anything else, then... 
We could develop some pretty interesting marriage theology by the Apostle Paul. Well, you know, if you marry, you haven't sinned. If a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you that trouble. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. Wait a second. The time is short for what? Because through Paul's pen, the system's about to end. The way of life as you know it is coming down. Get ready. It'd be best if, to be as you are. Stay as you are. Don't turn your life into something else right now. We don't have much time for this. Thirty thirty-one. Those who weep, be as those who did not weep. Those who rejoice, be as those who did not rejoice. Those who buy, be as those that did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. This is the same guy that in Ephesians 3 goes, world without end. Because the form of this world is not the same as world without end. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is three chapters later. It's still on his mind. And so for Paul, he says, look, there's some situations, and this is completely contextual for the Corinthian audience. He goes, for some situations, I have no advice for you to turn your life over. You don't have much time. You may not have time to go do all the things that other people have had time to do in other generations. We're the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. If you're, living a, if you're the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come, the rules are different for you. If you don't get, this is why sometimes we, we get straight up bizarre with the stuff we interpret in the Bible because we don't look at it through the lens that they were looking at it through. One final thought, and I'll close it tonight. This is the very way that the man who writes World Without End can also believe that it is the end of the age. Do not conflate the two. We are always at the end of something, but it isn't the end of the world. The sooner we, and I should have said the sooner the church, because that's Paul's audience in Ephesians 3. The sooner the church accepts their role to spread the light of the gospel, the better the world without end can be. Take responsibility for the world around you. That is why you are here. I would add this. You aren't going anywhere. Jesus in John 17 said, Father, I do not pray you to take them out of the world. I pray you to take them through it because escape is not our end game. World without end. Now, what are you going to do? Would it make a difference if you didn't think you were going anywhere? I think one of the most damning things that happened to Christian theology in the last 200 years was the idea that the end game for the church was escape from a planet going to hell. Because we had a theology of escape, we could look at the world and smile as it goes to hell. Because the faster it goes to hell, the faster we go to heaven. And that cannot be a resurrected Christ church. He cannot be pouring himself into a church so they'll turn their back on the world, let it go to hell, and go, come get me Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm already here. Now let's go do something. Now let me tell you this as I land. I know that for 2,000 years the orthodox position of the church is Jesus is coming again. I do not stand against the orthodox position of the church. I just don't always agree with how people think that looks. Okay? But I very much am on board when people say, do you think Jesus is coming back? I say, amen. 
absolutely, absolutely coming back. I believe he came back in his resurrection. I believe he came back on the road to Damascus. I believe he came back in judgment of a system at AD 70. I believe he's came back plenty of times since then. And I will never tell him he's not come, he can't come back in the future. And I will also say that I don't think we have yet arrived at apocatastasis. The restoration of all things. I just put the sermon up this last, week, this, this last weekend, which by the way, in 48 hours, and I know I'm not exaggerating, has been the most responded to sermon I think that our ministry has ever posted. Wow. Repent, refresh, restore. We put it up Sunday. And part of the reason everybody has responded is because it's participatory. It's, it's looking at your life, repent of the things you need to change your mind of, and then believe for refreshing, but get involved in the refreshing. Like lay some stuff down that needs to die so you can pick some stuff up that you need to pick up. And that's not just laying there like a slug and like expecting the Holy Spirit to slap it into you, but it's allowing Him to do it. But what's the last word there? Restore. That's apocatastasis. That's, He puts everything right. And I know that we are not completely there. So, He's coming to put everything right. But He's not taking you out so He can do it. And according to Paul, He wants you to participate And Paul wishes you would get that because it's world without end. That was a lot of stuff jammed in there, wasn't it? Can you do it one more time? Yeah. Yeah. We forgot to record it. Um, Let me say a prayer because I I like to season it with prayer and I like to land on just releasing it and allowing the Holy Spirit to just do whatever you want in us. Father, I thank you for this word tonight and I pray that somehow in our manner we were able to land on some things that are little light bulb moments for your kids. That it just reaches down into our hearts and gives us a little bit of freedom and a little bit of liberty, but not just from something, but into something. I don't want to just be liberated from one thing. I want to be liberated into something else. I want to be liberated into believing that I have a thing to do in this world, that I have a place in this world, that I have a gift in this world, and that the world could be a little better by me using it. And if I can believe that, and everyone in this room and everyone watching can believe just a little bit of that, well, then it can begin. Because we're in a world without end, even though little parts of our world have ended. But we do know that the apocatastasis, the restoration of all things is in our future. We ain't going anywhere. So we ask you to walk through it with us. And we thank you that we know you will. In Jesus' name, amen.